Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to talk a little bit about the reopening trade, um, what it's like if you operate restaurants, especially around uh, business areas, and uh, how difficult it can be to hire employees. For that, we go to Jim Hyatt. He is the CEO of California Pizza Kitchen. I know it well because um, when I worked at 731 Lexington Avenue, there was one around the corner that I went yeah, to I'm all the fan. time. Um, Jim, what's, what's it like now after the most unprecedented business event in our history? Um, I think it's safe to say that, right? Uh, what's it like reopening your restaurants around the country? Well, good morning to you. Yeah, it's kind of a one-two punch, right? I mean, COVID uh, gave us an unprecedented challenge, uh, clearly, and I think everybody's recovering uh, through that. I know we're happy with how we're bouncing through that and, and coming uh, on the other side. But now you have the staffing, which clearly is a struggle for the industry, and it's a, a little different challenge maybe by state, so they're not all equal in a way. But, uh, you know, we're all weathered through that, too. It's got two or three months, probably, and then it'll calm down. But, uh, you know, the restaurant business is tough. We'll, but, we'll but work tell our us way what, through it. But tell us what the staffing is like. I mean, is it is it just too difficult to find people that are willing to come in? Are they getting paid too much to stay on unemployment benefits? Are the health concerns still holding you back? What's the staffing issue? Well, it's clearly the money is keeping people on the sidelines a bit, right? Kind of a self uh self-inflicted process there, I think, kind of an unforced error maybe. But we've got to deal with it. And each state is a little different. We do have markets where we're fine. Um, we have markets where when school let out, we got some servers back, right? Some of the college servers that we normally would employ in our restaurants have come back to work with us because uh, they enjoy where they are. And then others where we've had to move people around, frankly, to make sure we're covering shifts and taking care of consumers. But it hasn't disrupted our operations by the time of time of service or uh, the, the times that we operate. So, so far, I think CPK has weathered that pretty well. But I think our starting point was really pretty good. We're usually better than all the industry norms on our, our retention numbers. So we maybe had a better starting place than some of our, our uh, restaurant friends. Hey, Jim, I'd love to get a sense. I know you guys are, you know, uh, all over the place, kind of the regional side of the demand side of your business and in, in terms of, you know, customer flow, where are you seeing particular strength and maybe where is it lagging a little bit? Well, we were lagging a little bit in California, obviously, because the restrictions, you know, we only got our dining rooms back to kind of an unrestricted uh, level um, last week, actually. So okay. uh, that was a big plus for us. And when you have the high number of or the high percentage of restaurants that we have in the state of California, that was a challenge for us. But uh, we were fine, and we're you know we're over our hundred percent of nineteen sales and fighting to you know have good staffing where we need to operate. But uh, it's clearly a tough environment right now, and that one-two punch that we kind of uh, talked about earlier. But uh, you know we're going to be fine. The restaurant industry is going to be fine. We'll weather our way through this, and we always have. The restaurant space is not an easy space, so it's no place for the timid. <laughs> what about pricing? Um, we've been reporting lately that food prices are at a 10-year high. 
Uh, do you see that in your input costs? Are you able to pass that through to consumers? Well, we actually haven't passed it on to consumers in, in a three-year trend. We're really behind, I think, the norm out there of uh, the price increasing that we, we've seen with uh, our competitors. We feel like it's a very difficult time to push that price along. Now, you know, commodities are coming through the back door at a higher level, so we have to obviously respect that. But we're, we're not an industry or a brand that's dependent on one one item, and we're pretty blended on a menu. We're not you know, overly dependent on chicken or overly dependent on beef or overly dependent when corn goes crazy. So we have a very balanced menu. And similar to what we're trying to do now, we're launching even a new product, and we haven't had any issues sourcing our products. We've had a substitution here or there because suppliers are challenged with staffing, which which is the effect, again, on the industry. But whether we're delivering a new product now like chickpea crust or whether it's the old staples of our menu ingredients, we've actually uh, weathered that fine so far. We're, you know, look, pricing is going to come. Chicken looked like it started to come down maybe today even, a little lower price. But on the other side, we're waiting on the fuel costs to go back Jim, up, right? We're waiting Jim, on that it, price to come back. Is it okay? Is it socially acceptable for me to eat pineapple on my pizza? No. <laughs> I love a Pizza Hawaii. The Jersey people, guy says no. Well, and people say it's a crime. Well, well, you know what we find with innovation, which is what we do, we bring innovation <laughs> to the market. That's chickpea, which we're introducing yep. now. It's on top of our cauliflower crust uh, that we introduced in 2018, and it's on top of my favorites and, and other customers' favorites. I get emails, you know, all week long from customers, when are you going to bring back something, something, something? Yep. And we try to do right. that. But it's about innovation, and everybody wants a little twist, whether you want right. pineapple on yours or whether you want a plant-based chicken product uh, All right. That's on your great. barbecue chicken substitution. Yeah. All right, Jim. Thanks so much. Uh, Jim Hyatt, CEO of California Pizza Kitchen. I'm a big fan of their Monterey, California store. It's good stuff down there. All right. We are going to talk right now to Tyler Cowan about his piece on – what his crypto friends get wrong, uh, Tyler, I absolutely love this piece, and I've been um, talking about it all day long, especially for your take on um, Bitcoin versus the dollar or really Bitcoin versus smaller, poorer rivals of the dollar. But let's talk first about the price move. What do you make of the drop below $30,000? I don't think any day-to-day -day move in the price of crypto means very much. We need to set it aside and think about the longer term. I do absolutely think crypto is here to stay, but the exaggerated claims I hear from crypto advocates, like the U.S. will go bankrupt, the dollar will disappear, uh, I just think all that is flat wrong. Crypto will become a normal asset. That will be great. It will have its place under the sun, but we should start thinking about it that way. So, Tyler, as it relates to Bitcoin per se, since that's the one in the in the news today, do you buy the argument, or do you understand or believe the argument that it is a store of value, a la gold? Uh, it is a store of value, but it and other crypto assets are also ways of pulling off a particular kind of decentralized transaction that we can't do with any other kind of asset. And we just don't know right now how valuable that set of transactions will be in the future. So it's like looking at a startup that's priced every day in the market. Uh, the price is incredibly volatile. It will be volatile for some while, uh, but at some point we'll figure out what it's worth. 
and then it will still go up and down, but it will be like, you know, Facebook stock, another asset. You point out um, the, 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 the piece that really hit home for me was that you say, if anything, crypto is more likely to hurt currencies of countries that are doing poorly, like Venezuela. Fiat currency won't just go away. So over the long run, crypto could actually boost the value of the dollar by stifling the rise of potential competitors. This is a point that Mike McGlone has been making for a while as well um, from Bloomberg Intelligence. And I noticed today that Mark Cudmore was talking about the implications of the Fed's hawkish turn, saying that it permits other central banks to be slightly more hawkish, even propels some in that direction. And the marginal move toward liquidity, tighter liquidity globally is basically going to hurt things like cryptos and meme stocks. What do you, what do you make of that? The U.S. is the world's strongest country. The more the Internet and the English language spread, that actually helps the relative soft power of the United States. Our government collects taxes in terms of dollars. That really is not going to change. So there's just no reason to bet against the dollar. But if you're a small country or your currency is iffy, crypto is a real competitor. So you could imagine some kind of future world where the dollar is still the central reserve currency, but some form of crypto is another central form of currency for other purposes, such as pulling off these particular kinds of decentralized transactions. And that makes the dollar and crypto the big winners. Why do you think China's cracking down, or at least it looks like they are? I'm never sure any outsider understands <laughs> China. Uh, it seems to me they view it as an alternative power center, as a way that people can evade their capital controls, get money out of the country. Now, in the past, the CCP has been, in fact, the main promulgator of those uses of crypto. But at some point, maybe powers become so centralized in the CCP uh, that they want to put an end to this, just as they are checking the power of their national tech companies. Uh, but I would say we don't know. Tyler, so if if for those that want a less volatile crypto space, is it is the re recommendation or is the thought it'll just take time? We will get Wait. there. Wait, it will take time. It's not coming next week. I don't even think it's coming next year. Uh, but at some point, there will be a shakeout, and we will either figure out exactly what we can use crypto for, or decide those uses won't work, and uh, it will be more stable. Yes. And I, 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 I mean, your point is. That's something to celebrate, right? I mean, when we get to a point where Bitcoin is rising only a few percent per year, that's actually a good thing. Yes, it's not the utopian dreams of many crypto backers. Uh, but crypto, in some sense, needs to be normalized to survive. Most of our world is normal. Whether we like it or not, our policymakers insist on things being normal enough. They can whack crypto down in a number of ways. And I think it's more likely crypto uh, right. will become another asset. That's fine. Hey, Tyler, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate getting your perspective on this new asset class. I think investors are really trying to get their arms around, uh, and we love bringing informed opinion to get uh, some color on that. Tyler Cowan, Bloomberg Opinion columnist for Bloomberg News. You can read uh, Tyler's work on all the Bloomberg Opinion stuff at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or OPIN Go on the terminal. I saw, and uh, I thought, a fascinating story yesterday evening. Goldman Sachs 
sees $5.5 trillion of cash sitting mm. on the sidelines. A team led by David Costin, the strategist there, said that they expect $500 billion to go back into U.S. stocks through year end. And a huge portion of that is expected to be in corporate buybacks. I want to bring in Lyle Heimbaugh to get his outlook. Uh, he is a co-founder of Granite Group Advisors out of Wilton, Connecticut. And Lyle, just I, I just thought it was interesting. You know, there's there's at least one reason we could see stocks continue to to rise this year. What do you see in terms of uh, an, an S and P 500 outlook? Well, what we're looking right now, the you know, just to give you a little context, the way we look at the world is that you know, if you look at the historical average of 15 times earnings, the P.E. ratio, that's what it was for 30 years. But in the last 10 years, with interest rates going down the way they have, the historical average is now 18. With the market trading right now at around 20 times a price-to-earnings ratio, we feel the markets are, at least in the short term, you know, you know, fairly valued. You know, the real apprehension uh, for us, uh, at least here in the short term, is that when you have, you know, higher rates and higher oil and higher taxes, that's not necessarily a recipe for a higher market, especially when you're trading at a, what I would say, a fully value. I don't think we're, you know, we're, we're cheap, but I don't think we're uh, expensive either. So I think, you know, you know, the average uh, target on my uh, first call system says the, the S&P is, you know, the Wall Street's looking for 47.88 or something like that in, in that range, which is about 13% higher from here. You know, I, I'm, we're going to disagree with that. We think that's a, that's a bit high for a year-end target. And I think, uh, it'll, I would think if we get to 4,400 or 4,500, that would, that would be really a, a little bit of a stretch. But on the other hand, if we have any type of pullback, which we expect in the short term of 5 or 10%, that also present a, a buying opportunity. Well, first thing we have to do is upgrade you from a first call to a Bloomberg. We'll take care of that. Lyle, <laughs> give us a sense here. You know, there's a big debate in the market. You know, uh, do I stick with some of the big growth names that worked so well for me over the, the really the last decade or so? Or do I, you know, go with that rotation trade that has, in fact, been working, kind of reflation trade into some more cyclical names, perhaps some, you know, the banks and think things like that? What's your view? Yeah, I, I think that's a great call. So when I was uh, when I was speaking with you guys in the fall, you know, the, you know, before Pfizer came out with the vaccine, we were very bullish, and I was out emphatically pounding the table on energy, the cyclicals, and mid-cap value. I actually said that on, on in November. Uh, I still think that's a, a, a pretty good play. And just re realize they've had a tremendous, tremendous move. So I think some of those names will continue to do well. I still think uh, because of I, we still think interest rates are going to go up slightly. I don't think anyone thinks that we're going to go to 3%, but, you know, 2% seems to be the consensus uh, on the 10-year. So I would think, you know, the banks and anything that's interest rate sensitive should do pretty well. You know, J.P. Morgan's had a pullback, but a, a big pullback. I think, you know, cyclical stocks like Disney uh, still have some room on the upside because it's pulled back from the high of 203. I think, you know, those those are really pretty good names. Uh that I would stick with in the short and the long term. Lyle, just got 30 seconds here. Um, why are um, uh, pooled employer plans the hot topic in the 401k world? Well, it, that's, that's, that's another great topic. You know, pooled employer plans are essentially a bunch of uh, 401ks inside of one big 401k. And what in the purpose of these uh, 
of uh, vehicles is not only to uh, reduce cost a little bit, but the big advantage to the, especially to the small employers that don't have investment committees, it's usually a an owner or, or a uh, or a CEO, you know, right. signing papers that he doesn't realize si- that he's signing, but they take on a lot of liability. When someone goes into a PEP, so the GGA401k PEP is a turnkey right. where we can go and where someone can come in and say, you know, we're going to absolve themselves yep. from investment fiduciary responsibility and operational fiduciary responsibility. All they have to yep. do is upload payroll. Lyle, thank you so much. Forgot to leave it there just because of time. We appreciate that. Lyle Heimball, uh, co-founder of Granite Group Advisors. I think, Matt, I represent a small part of the population here that sees a little bit of a silver lining um, in the pandemic and that maybe we've, you know, upped our exercise game a little bit. For me, I kind of got on this Peloton thing um, and I'm actually exercising for the first time and I can't even remember how long. So I suspect there's some others out there uh, like that that are doing that as well as you you take a look at some. I've gone the other direction. You have? Yeah, I've been, um, you know testing out the amount of beers per day I can drink and how many Netflix shows I can watch. Germany is a good place for the for the beer part. All right, let's bring in Avram uh, Elmakas. He's the CEO of Climber. Uh, talk to us about kind of just the exercise business, what the trends are, where we go from here. Avram, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love for you to just kind of give us a 30,000 over 30,000 foot overview of Climber. Uh, what are you guys doing? Thank you for having me. First of all, uh, Climber is a connected fitness company. I mean, so much like you, you referenced Peloton, uh, where it's kind of a community-based, it's got a screen. The, the most important difference is that we use, uh, you know, kind of this vertical climbing modality, uh, which is really safe and, and efficient for the body versus, you know, sitting down on a traditional exercise bike or rower. And so that's, that's really the core difference uh, between what we're doing at Climber and kind of a lot of the things in the marketplace today. Hang on. So it's a machine that I could order to my home and like Paul does with his Peloton, but I could, because for me, riding a bike, is just super boring, but I love climbing. So is that, is that what we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, my, my, the reason why I started this was I never could understand why we as a society, we're sitting down to work out, right? Because most of us will have stand-up desks now and, and, you know, different things like that. So it's just a different motion where, you know, you're kind of using your body's primal crawling movement um, rather than, you know, sitting down and, and, and doing a bicycle or a rower or something like that. So it really just starts with that difference in modality. Um, and And then it's all about the community and the engagement and, and all of that great stuff. So, Avram, give us a sense of kind of how your business was impacted by the pandemic. We've heard stories from, again, the, the Pelotons of the world where they just had a surge in demand. Talk to us about your business. Yeah, tremendous amount of demand. I think, you know, Americans and, and really everyone around the world has kind of looked internally as a result of this pandemic and said, gosh, you know, health and wellness and fitness are are just so important. And so... Uh, we've also been beneficiaries of that. Um, interestingly, we, we see a lot of people returning to gyms, right? And we see a lot of people looking for that kind of community-based environment where they're almost like a congregation of sorts, uh, you know, kind of getting together to work out. And so uh, we do have kind of a, a business-to-business side of our of, of climber as well, kind of in support of those, those uh, commercial facilities. 
You know, the interesting thing, I was talking to the guy who runs Future, which is um, which is a training. It's like an, a trainer that you use via FaceTime, basically. Um, and he yep. said there were a lot of people who got on a Peloton or got climbers during the lockdown. But there were also a ton of people who put on like the freshman 15 all over again. I'm one of those people. Um, <laughs> are you seeing more pe- as as we need to reemerge into society, you know, possibly in a bathing suit since it's summer? Are, are you seeing more and more people order your machines or, or or is it going the other way, you know, because we can go outside? It's it, it, you know, we're we're early days. And so the demand curve here is just exponential. And so we're just thrilled that, uh, you know, that, that people are kind of, you know, charging ahead and, and really thinking more about, you know, health and wellness. It's just it's kind of top of mind from wearables and kind of tracking to diet and, and, and obviously exercise is just such a big part of it. And so, um you know, we're, we're pleased to be kind of riding that wave and, and think it will continue um, as a result of this pandemic. So, all right. So give us a sense of how your business, how you think your business will do, what you may have to change or adapt as the world does open up, as people do go back to the gyms. How do you envision that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, frankly speaking, I think people will return to gyms, maybe not at the same rate as they were pre-pandemic, right? Because I think people are especially nervous with, like, huge gyms when we think about, like, you know, big, big floor gyms. Um, but I think, you know, that's where we can offer, you know, climbing as a modality to the to those businesses as a, as a point of differentiation and innovation to kind of welcome people back in. Um for us, it's really been challenging, you know, as a business, um, because most of our products are made in, in Asia, um, just from a supply chain standpoint. So uh, just navigating that is kind of super top of mind for us as a business right now. Do you know, for me, I mean, the machine looks awesome. And I was reading reviews. Cleveland Clinic says the movement can be challenging, but it's very effective. Um, uh, the climber. I I think it would be sweet, but I don't understand the the social part. Like I just want to get on it and and work it. But uh, I know that Paul loves the instructors on Peloton. Yeah. What's what's your social draw? What, what do people like to climb together? Yeah. So I mean, you'll see everything on the machine from the instructors, right? Like where you have different uh, different styles of instruction, right? Some people like that you know, motivational type of instructor. Some people like the more uh, quiet, maybe music-driven instructor. And so, you know, the video on demand is a, is a key piece, uh, you know, of the overall yeah. experience, kind of the social network. I climb fastest when I'm terrified. So if you have, you know, like um, the CIA after me looking to put a cap in me, that would that would motivate me. All right, climber there, really fascinating stuff, Abram El- Elmichus talking about that thanks for listening to the bloomberg markets podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer i'm matt miller i'm on twitter at matt miller 1973 and i'm paul sweeney i'm on twitter at pt sweeney before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide at bloomberg radio